0: It'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 21, so if you would turn there in your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, we should, uh, there should be one in the row in front of you that you can use this morning. I'm grateful for George filling in for me last week, it was a blessing to hear him again and, and see a uh, little Reed get baptized. Well, We're continuing through our series here, 1 Samuel, looking at the life of David at this point in this historical book. And here we see that he is on the run. Essentially, he is running uh, from Saul, um, and we'll see that interesting things happen in chapter twenty-one. He runs to uh, formerly were his enemies, but Saul has now become his enemy. So he is he's running to whomever he can to survive. So, uh, if you would please stand, I'll be reading the entire chapter twenty-one. And then we're going up through verse five of chapter twenty-two. So not uh, as long of a of a text. If you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I've charged you. I have made an appointment with with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always as uh, when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. And then David said to Ahimelech, then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? for I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod, if you will take it, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul, and went from Achish the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart, and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, and pretended to be insane in their hands, and made marks on the door of the gate, and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why have you then brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? That you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became a commander over them. And there were with him about four hundred men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you, till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold, depart, and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herath. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you open our eyes, open our minds to understand your word. Would you grant us humility to understand. Would you speak to us through your word. Father, would you apply these words to our hearts so that we see our salvation, we see you, the promise keeper, our savior, and see Jesus in these words. And this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is some interesting series of events, isn't it? Uh, in chapter 21. We see very clearly that David is desperate. He's a desperate man, one, running from one place to the next, one person to the next. And you know, in our desperate moments, think about times you've been desperate. Think about times you've been under a lot of stress. In our desperate moments, we do stupid things, don't we? We do things we can't quite explain. We do things we look back and we think, why did I do that? Was I crazy? (laughs) What was I thinking? And sometimes we make bad situations worse. In the midst of stress, in the midst of distress, we make bad situations worse. And when we read passages like this, it's interesting because we wonder, you know, this is, this is the history of God's people. This is the history of his anointed, his king. Where is God? What is he doing? Because he doesn't seem as prominent, does he, God, in this passage. All we see is David running from one thing to the next in distress, trying to survive. And you may be asking that in your own life, in your own desperation, when you're under stress, you may be asking, where are you, God? What is God doing? Why is he allowing this? Where has he been? Well, I want you to see something in this text, that God is in this text. He is in this passage, and he is moving for David. He is providing, he is protecting, he is planning, and he's proclaiming. David. And so the main idea this morning is that God provides for, He protects, He plans, He proclaims to His people despite our panic driven lies, our deception, and our desperation. As Dale Ralph Davis says in his commentary, even in our most desperate moments, the Lord does not let go of His servants. Even in our desperate, most desperate moments, The Lord does not let go of his servants, least of all, David, his king, elect. So we're going to see how God provides, how he's our provider. We're going to see how he protects us. We're going to see how he plans and how he proclaims to us in the midst of distress. So let's first look at verses 1 through 9, and we'll see how God is providing for David. We see immediately in verse 1 that he comes to this place called Nob, which is where um, the the priests are, and where the presumably the Ark of the Covenant is. It used to be in a place called Shiloh. If you remember early in First Samuel, we named our daughter our new daughter Shiloh. I'm not sure why we didn't name her Nob. Um, does it? I guess it doesn't have the same ring to it. <clears throat> but anyways, that's where the Ark is at, at, at Nob, and that's where the priest is, Ahimelech. And look what we see here. David comes to Nob and to Ahimelech the priest and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling. And he said, "Why are you alone? No one with and no one with you?" He comes trembling. Why does Ahimelech come trembling to David? Well, we can speculate. We're not exactly sure, but the fact that he's alone tips Ahimelech off to something is wrong. David is on the run. And we can tell, and Ahimelech can tell that something is wrong in Israel. He knows he is the king-elect, he is the anointed one, and he's on the run, he's by himself, and he's shuddering to see that David's alone and no one's with him. It doesn't sit right with the priest to see this. And what does David say? David said to Amalek the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. Is this true? No. No, it's not. David is creating a story here. He's lying. He's he's, he's deceiving Ahimelech. There's a lot of speculation as to why. What is the motivation of David? Is he trying to protect Ahimelech, possibly, from certain knowledge about what David is doing, what he's up to? Uh, Is David just fearful and not wanting to, to let others know? Is he thinking maybe, I can't trust this priest because this is the priest of Saul. Remember, he's, he's running from Saul and there's really no safe place for him to go in Israel. So he makes up this story. I, th- I think it's more that he cannot trust this priest. And so he creates this story. He, he deceives. And it brings up this, this question again. This, this is the third time this has happened where somebody for God's good purposes has lied or told a story or deceived the people that, that he's in front of. If you remember McCall's story that she told so that David could get away. And so it brings up this question in our mind, is lying always wrong? Yes, (laughs) it is. (laughs) I left you in suspense there. It is. It is always wrong. We don't believe in what's called situational ethics, meaning whatever the situation is, you can tweak the morals of the situation, change. It doesn't mean that situations are easy. Lying to protect someone, for instance, and protecting their life. And we can have good purposes and good ends to the stories we tell, but it still doesn't mean that it's, it's, it's not a sin. Alistair Begg about on this idea says, if you, if you sow a thought, you reap an action. If you sow an action, you reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you reap a character. And if you sow a character, you reap a destiny. So our decisions matter. The words we use matter. And if you read ahead into chapter 22, this lie that David tells, there isn't, there's going to be bad consequences for the priesthood at Nob. And we'll read about that in chapter 22. And it's about this guy Doag, who we read in verse 7. He comes up again in chapter 22, so you need to stay tuned when we get there. But there's consequences to this lie, that the story that he tells. There's consequences to his deception. And David could have told the truth, couldn't he? I'm on the run. My life is at stake. I could die. I'm running from Saul. He could have been truthful, but he didn't. In a sense, David is, is sort of acting like everything's fine and dandy, but everything's not fine and dandy. He wants to treat a bad situation like everything is fine. Are you ever tempted to do that? Brush it under the rug. And so we see David here in his weakness, don't we? He's in distress, he's under, he's under stress. He's running for his life and he's weak. He stood against a giant a few chapters ago and now he shrinks before a priest. He stood against a giant, now he shrinks before a priest. But does it turn out bad for him in, the, in this section? No, it doesn't actually. God provides for David. Look at Ahimelech's response in verses 3-6. through six. David asks, "Now then, why, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or or whatever's here." Another st- part of his deception is David is saying he has an entourage with him. I think what's most likely true is that he doesn't. He's alone, but he's trying to act like he does have some people with him. And so he asked for five loaves of bread. Why five? I'm not sure. Maybe he thought that was the perfect number for his deception. And then the priest says, I have no common bread on hand, but there's holy bread. So he's willing to offer this bread if the men that, that are with him um, are ceremonial, ceremonially clean. And so they discuss that. And, and he says, of course, of course, we always stay clean. We always keep the young men away from women um, when we're on a journey, when we're on an expedition. So the priest in verse 6 gives him the holy bread, for there was no bread uh, But the bread of the present. See, in the in the in the temple, they would have the bread for a week, and then they would replace it every Sabbath with with the fresh bread. But still, this was bending of the rules. This uh, this bread was really supposed to be left for the priests, and not for for David. Now he was not a priest in that in that way, and so he's bending the rules. He is he is making sure that he's he's clean, ceremonial clean. But but he gives it to him anyways out of mercy. Out of mercy, he bends the rules. It, this, this scene is actually mentioned by Jesus. In Mark 2, Jesus says, well, the story goes before he tells the story. One Sabbath, his, him and his disciples were going to the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, began to pluck heads of grain on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus says to the Pharisees, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him and, and how he entered the house of God and in that time of Abiathar, the high priest. He calls the priest Abiathar because Abiathar in the next scene is the only one who, who survives out of all the priests. That's probably why he uses that name. And he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those Who were with him. And this is Jesus' explanation. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So what Jesus is saying is um, there are times for mercy and grace and a, a relaxing of the law if it's intended to glorify God and be good for man. And this was God sustaining his king by providing food for him when he needed it most. You see, David didn't deserve this treatment, did he? He was, he was in the midst of telling a story that was false, God still provides for his, son, for his son and his king. He didn't deserve it. And brothers and sisters, neither do we. When God provides for us, we do not deserve it. But David was anointed and he walked under God's favor as those of us who are in Christ do as well. So I want you to think back in your life and how many examples can you think of of provision that God provided for you? Can you identify those moments when God provided for you even though you weren't following Him faithfully? Can you think back to those times? For me, I think the provision uh, that God is giving me, Hannah is my wife, and how just an immense blessing she is to me that I do not deserve. And each one of my kids, I think about how they are a provision from God to remind me of His grace and His love and His goodness to me. I think of my church. I think of the, the immense blessing it is to be a part of a, a gospel-loving church, a, a Jesus-centered church where the, where the grace of His gospel is alive and active amidst us. That is a huge provision for me every single day of my life. And I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. But God is good to those who look to him. He provides for us. That's the first idea. And secondly is God protects us. He protects us just as he protected David. Look at verse, verse 10 and following. Previous to this, he um, he asked Ahimelech where he can get a sword. He needs a weapon. He doesn't have one, and so what is the one weapon, ironically, that is here at the where the priest is at the temple? It's the sword of Goliath, and you can imagine this is a large sword. This is the sword David used uh, to cut off his head to kill Goliath, and so David receives this sword. But inexplicably, he goes to Goliath's hometown, Gath. He takes the sword down to there where the king Achish is uh, the king there. And here we think, okay, things must be really bad between David and Saul. If he's willing to leave Israel and go to his sworn enemy, the place where he killed their leader with that leader's sword and think he maybe wouldn't be noticed... It doesn't take very long. People notice him. They remember David. What did they say? Oh, don't you remember the song? Look at verse 11. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. This is that guy that people sing about. And what has happened? 12, verse 12, David took the words to heart and he was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So what does David do? It's kind of funny actually. He pretends he's insane, right? He lets, he sort of foams at the mouth and lets his spit run down his beard and he thinks, okay, this is the only chance I have to survive, I'm going to act insane. A madman. So he says he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane. But what's even more funny is the king's response. You can see this man is mad, so it works, right? He doesn't want anything to do with him. Why have you brought him to me? This is what's funny. do I lack madmen? That you've brought this fellow to behave as a madman? He's saying, "I've got tons of madmen in, in, the, in the Philistines." Just kind of a, I think it's a slight dig at, at the Philistines. Shall this fellow come into my house? So it works. He has this crazy idea. Have you ever looked back on your actions in life and been like, "What? What was I thinking? I was under so much right? Actually, there's medical science that shows when you're under stress. Um, you don't get enough oxygen to your brain and you end up making impulsive decisions that aren't always rational but it worked god was with him akish believes that david is insane and wants nothing to do with him you know what's really interesting is is that there are six different psalms that david writes with so, so you know some of the psalms have a heading and they explain kind of the hist- history behind the psalm there's six different psalms that that are written by David that are during this time period of going, of going to this cave that we'll see in a minute, of escaping Gath, of escaping Saul. Six of the Psalms were written by David during this distressing time in his life. And one of those is Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Look, at, if you would, turn your Bibles over to Psalm 34. I'm actually going to preach on this next Sunday, so I won't go into it uh, too much. Psalm 34, see the heading is of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Abimelech is just a a title of son of the king, um, but it's achish. This is the psalm he's writing about. This is is David's inner thoughts in in this very scene with this king as he's trying to get away. And I want you to look at verse 6 of Psalm 34. This poor man cried, And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. You see, David knew that he was a mess. He knew. He called himself a poor man. He knew he needed help. He didn't know what to do. But he knew the Lord was going to save him. He knew the Lord was going to protect him. All throughout Psalm 34, there are verses that say, The Lord will protect the righteous. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. It saves the crushed in spirit. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He knew God was going to be with him. Do you ever feel like a poor man? Do you ever feel like a poor woman? The Apostle Paul felt like that. In, In chapter 7 of Romans, he said, Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He knew who would save him. And some of the other Psalms, Psalm 56, that also is during this time period, he says, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. David knew he was weak. He knew he was dependent. It reminds us that when we're in distress, we need to cry out to the Lord. We need to cry out to the one who can protect us. We must pray as dependent people. When we get into our, our Wednesday night and go through that book, there the first chapter is on dependence, that prayer is dependent. And Alistair Begg writes, uh, using an example here, he says, sometime last year when I picked up my mail, I discovered that the Church of Scientology has sent me a very nice magazine. Apparently they're trying to recruit me. And I commend commend them for their attempt, though they will be disappointed with the results. But as I looked at the magazine and I went back to see the aims of Scientology, I realized their view could be summed up in four words. We can fix this. We can fix this. Through our technology, through our doing it our way, through our various stages of the Dianetic discovery, you can be okay, they claim. We can fix this. And that is the answer all other religions and self-help will say. We can fix this. But this is, why, this is how the Christianity is different. The Christian gospel says, we can't fix this. You can't fix this. If you look into yourself, you will ultimately find only that which disappoints you and confronts you with your own ineptitude and your inability to fix even the smallest things that really matter. The problem is inside you. So the answer, the solution must come from outside you and not rely upon you. So it's the most wonderful news that Jesus has come in order to fix your problem and restore you to the relationship you were made for. We can't fix ourselves. Every other method and philosophy of man is designed to say, we can fix this. We have a solution. But Christianity says no. It must depend upon the one who, who can do it, not us. The PCA lost a, a, a father figure, a, a father pastor uh, yesterday, the day before. Tim Keller, pastor, passed away. And he um, will be, is beloved by, by many, but one of the things he did best was explain the gospel clearly. And he said this, if you're falling off a cliff, strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch if you're falling. Salvation is not finally based on the strength of your faith, but on the object. Of your faith. You can have the weakest faith imaginable, but if it is attached to Jesus, you will be saved. You will be strengthened. Because it's not about us, it's about what you look to to be saved, it's about who you rely on. And that's what David is doing here in these scenes. He is looking crazy, he's looking like a fool, but who is his trust in? It's in the Lord. It's in the Lord. And we see what, what, what occur, occurs after this scene is that he, he, he goes from there, verse uh, 1 of chapter 22, he goes to this cave, and his family hears about it. Uh, his brothers and all his father's house heard it, and they went down, from, down there to him, and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became the commander over them. David is holding on to the strong branch and others who need that strong branch are, are, are going to him. It reminds me of Jesus himself when he would gather the weak, when he would gather the sinners, when he would gather the tax collectors. He said in Luke 5, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. But he's finally getting those who need need God, they're gathering around David. And he finally is getting help. Next we see that God has a plan. He provides, he protects, and he has a plan. Look at verse 3 and 4. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. So David then goes, we think he's going crazy again. He goes from Gath and the Philistines. Now he goes to Moab, another enemy of Israel. Going anywhere but Israel. He takes his parents there. Why would he take his parents to Moab? Well, he wants to make sure that they're going to be taken care of, but why in the world would he think the king of Moab, this horrible guy, this enemy of Israel, would take care of his parents? Well, you've got to remember one thing, his lineage. David has Moabite blood in him, if you recall, who his great-great-great-grandmother was. Her name was Ruth from Moab. The end of Ruth, chapter 4, Boaz and Ruth fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is his lineage. This is, this is uh, who he came from. Obad, his grandfather, was Ruth's son. So he has Moabite blood in him. This has been sorted out. This is, this is one way God has planned something years and years before David comes on the scene to provide for him and to make a plan for him. It reminds us that God works out details of our lives well before we even get on the scene. That He is doing, He is making plans well before we arrive, and He can turn anything out for our good. Ultimately, I wanted to share this story from Del Ralph Davis. The story <coughs> uh, from World War II, late '30s, during the time of uh, the Nazi expansion in Europe. In 1938, Roman Tursky, a Polish flyer, was returning home from France. His plane developed engine trouble and he had to land to re- for repairs in Nazified Vienna. Next morning, as Tursky stepped out from his hotel to buy souvenirs before resuming his flight, a fellow came running through the door and slammed into him. Before Tursky could inflict verbal vengeance, he saw the man was white with fear. When he said Gestapo, Gestapo, Tursky rushed him through the lobby up to his own room and arranged the man's slender body under the covers at the foot of his bed. Tursky made himself look like he'd just gotten up. And after the visiting Gestapo had checked his passport and shouted questions, they left without searching the room. The pilot showed his grateful visitor the flight map and they communicated by gestures. No, Tursky couldn't take him to Warsaw. He had to land for fuel in Krakow, And drawing prison bars on the margin of the map, he indicated his new friend would be arrested at any airport. He would land in some meadow just over the Polish border and his passenger would be on his own. They did, and he was. When Turski landed at Krakow, the police were there to search his plane. They'd been told that he assisted a man to escape from Vienna. Well, they found nothing, so they had to release him. And he asked why the man had been wanted, and they said that he was a Jew. Well, Tersky served as a fighter pilot in the Polish Air Force, and after Poland's defeat, he and others crossed to Romania, where they were caught and sent to concentration camps. Turski managed to escape and join the French Air Force. After France's fall, he went to England and fought in the Battle of Britain, and on one of his missions, he rammed a German plane and was hit by a scrap of its tail, partially blinded with blood. He was unconscious when he crash-landed his Spitfire in England. His skull had been fractured, and the chief surgeon at the hospital thought it useless to operate. But he awoke, and he saw a narrow face looking down on him. The fellow in the white smock spoke, Remember me? You saved my life in Vienna. Tursky remembered and learned the rest of the story. The fugitive passenger had eventually arrived in Warsaw. Before the war, he escaped to Scotland, and he heard that a Polish squadron had distinguished itself in the Battle of Britain, He thought Turski might be in it, and he wrote to inquire, and he was. He knew Turski's name because it had been written on the margin of the map. The day before, he had read of a Polish hero shooting down five enemy planes and crash landing near a certain hospital. The piece had indicated the flyer's condition seemed hopeless, and he asked the RAF in Edinburgh to fly him to the hospital name. Turski asked him, why? His answer, I thought that at last I could do something to show my gratitude. You see, I'm a brain surgeon, and I operated on you this morning. Who could have guessed that by shielding a fugitive, one was saving his Savior? One would think that would not have anything to do with anything. The twists of his story, however, were confined within the scope of several years. In David's case, all the usual arrangements had been made over a century before. Yahweh plans his kindnesses long beforehand. See, God is capable of planning kindnesses to you well before you even come on the scene. And that's what God did in Moab when he took his parents there and provided for him. And for those who trust in Christ, things were, were sorted out for you 2,000 years ago on a hill called Calvary. where your future, your destiny was sure when Christ went to the cross for you. And we hear this in Paul's words in Ephesians 1 that that he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That God thought of you before he made anything. That he had plans for you. To save you. That you would be holy and would be blameless. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. That is the kind of plan God can put together. Well, God has a plan, but he also proclaims. He proclaims. Look at verse 5. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herod. If you recall, David is waiting to hear from God. That's what he says to the king of Moab, he says, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. He's waiting. He wants to hear from God. And then he does. Through the prophet Gad, he says, do not, do not stay here, depart and go to the land of Judah. Contrast this for a minute with Saul's experience of late. He's not hearing from God anymore. Through God's judgment upon Saul, he's getting nothing. Back in chapter 14, he asks of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But God did not answer him. God did not answer him on that day. God did not answer him. So brothers and sisters, where do we hear from God? You may be saying, I don't have a prophet Gad to speak to me. But I want to tell you, you've got something better than the prophet Gad. You've got God's final word through Christ Jesus, to you. And every time you open up His Word, you're hearing from God. Tim Keller says that when you read and study God's Word and hear His Word as you open up your Bible, that is His power coming into your life. As you hear God's Word, as you study it, as we'll see tonight at tonight's service, in Isaiah 55, God says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven... And return there, but water the earth, making it spread forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall not return to me empty. We have God's word. And what God wants us to see and know is Christ Jesus. Hebrews 1 The author says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. David heard from Gad, this prophet, temporary prophet. We have God's final word through his Son. Brothers and sisters, David had many imperfections. He had many failures what david never lost sight of was his desire for god he had more delight in being saved than having success he had more delight in being saved than in his service to god so as we close I ask you a question are you in distress this morning what's distressing you what's difficult do you fear for the future and if that's you this morning Are you consistently hearing God speak to you through the scriptures in the midst of your distress? Are you opening up his word? Are you giving yourself time to do that every day? If you're not, you're removing yourself from the greatest gift he has for you. He is speaking. I know you can hear, but will you listen? That's what we tell our kids all the time. I know you can hear me. Are you listening? And if you listen, you will see he's providing, he's protecting, he's planning, and he's proclaiming. I'll just finish with this final anecdote story. Um, from, it's a, just one last thing from Tim Keller, and it was a short video of him. I think it was on a Zoom call, and someone asked him, well, what do you say to young people who are fearing for the future? And I love his response because it's so simple. He just said, if Jesus really died and rose again, He's resurrected and people saw him and and he is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and he's going to return one day everything's going to be okay everything's going to be okay if you're worried about the future ultimately everything is going to work out because Jesus is going to come back and he's living and ruling and reigning right now let's pray Father, we thank you that you do rule and that you do reign. And that even when it's hard to see you, you've spoken and you do work and you are active in our lives. To point us to Jesus, to point us to our Savior, to point us to your strength and your power and, and to, to remind us that, it's, that we can be weak and it's not about our power. But in you, we're made strong as we look not to ourselves but to what you have finished what you've done what you've completed on the cross lord jesus we thank you that you are that you have rose from the dead and it is all true and we look forward to your coming in jesus name amen